0: The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Each week they present a public forum whose mission is to deal with significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values of the contemporary world and to promote critical thinking. So, without further ado, here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum.
1: Welcome to All Souls Forum. I'm Spencer Graves, a member of the Forum Committee. In planning for this session, the Forum Committee wanted a leader in political science to discuss the recent election. Close enough that it was still a current topic, but far enough to allow time to process the information. I suggested Professor Michael Smith, chair of the Department of Social Sciences, Sociology, and Criminology at Emporia State. And the editor of a recent book that appeared earlier this year, serving, re, surveying recent changes in voting laws, and is titled "Much Sound and Fury or the New Jim Crow." He is also a co-author of a 2019 book on low taxes and small government, Sam Brownback's Great Experiment in Kansas. The, and he, he told me he's working on another one. I, he he yeah. can tell us about later, he, maybe. The Forum Committee thought he would be a great choice to discuss this topic, and he agreed to do so. Before I turn the floor over uh, to Professor Smith, I do want to say that the mission of this forum is to afford a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those which involve ethical values in the contemporary world, and to promote critical thinking. It has been doing this since 1943. Just as a reminder, uh, to Professor Smith and my audience, uh, it is my fantasy that Professor Smith will talk for about 35 minutes, after which we will beg for money. Uh, <laughs> and, and then we will have que- and then we will have questions and answers. Um, so can um, please prepare your questions? Uh, I prefer we like short questions and not speeches, preferably 30 seconds, 60 words to allow Professor Smith more time to respond. And please
2: silence your cell phones.
1: Professor Smith.
2: Good morning, Unitarians. Uh, Just a little bit of personal information about me. I split my time between Kansas City and Emporia. Um, I do have a place in Emporia. It would be too far to commute daily, of course, but um, my family and I are settled here. And I'm active in Kansas City United Church of Christ, formerly Country Club Congregational United Church of Christ. I probably don't have to explain why we changed the name. And so I I consider us kindred spirits, uh, working together in Moore Squared and other groups. This is not my first trip to all souls, and it's good to be back. In fact, um, there's an old joke about the UCC, that UCC, it's the United Church of Christ, but the joke is it stands for uh, Unitarians Considering Christ. That's a little bit about my background, but you you didn't come here to hear me talk about myself, you came here to hear a little bit about one political scientist, or maybe more than one, perspective on the um, midterms. So what happened with the midterms? Well, I'm a state and local politics guy. We can talk about the big picture. We can talk about the national picture, if you would like, when we get to Q&A. But I thought we could talk a little bit about Missouri and Kansas, because that's what I do. Um, and I'll start with Kansas. Um, I do wear two hats. Um, living in Missouri, working in Kansas, I'm associated with Kansas politics um because that's where I work, and that just happens to be where i've I've had the, in my opinion, uh, the good fortune of of meeting reporters and and uh, other scholars and so on and so forth. But I actually uh, study Missouri politics quite a bit too, so we'll do a kind of a quick rundown of the midterms in both states. So let's start out with the midterms in Kansas. What's the big picture? Well, of course, you know as well as I do. I mean, I, I know this congregation. I know I know you, you folks. I know you all are politically plugged in, sophisticated, follow the news. In fact, my biggest worry with presentations like this is that I'm going to come up here and tell you things you already know. Um, but I'll try to keep it interesting and so forth, make time for Q&A. Um, so, at the risk of telling you things you already know, <laughs> um, any political campaign begins the day after the last election. That's called the perpetual campaign. That's kind of a given., uh, but a lot of that is going on behind the scenes with the fundraising, especially the fundraising, and the uh, consultant hiring and the positioning and the, you know, taking votes in the legislature that will come up during the election cycle and so forth. um the 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 heated part of the campaign, For Kansas, this cycle, I would argue, really probably started this summer with the abortion rights vote, um, with the pro-choice side prevailing on a vote on a proposed constitutional amendment in the state of Kansas, and the pro-choice side did prevail by about 18 points. How did they do that? Well, um, I think it's a combination of factors. It's, uh, first of all, a reminder that voters really aren't liberal or conservative, are they? Voters are voters, and they will do what they will do. Um, I wouldn't call Kansas liberal by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, The single uh, person, living or dead, that's received the most votes of any human being in the state of Kansas in history is Donald Trump. So uh, more than Bob Dole, more than Bill Graves, more than Laura Kelly, more than Kathleen Sebelius, it's Donald Trump. Uh, but at the same time, we had this 18 point blowout uh, defeating a constitutional amendment that would have allowed the Kansas legislature to criminalize abortion, uh, which was widely rumored to be to be something that would have happened very quickly, as it did in Missouri, had that amendment passed. Uh, why? Well, in terms of the numbers, what we know is it was a combination of a huge supermajority in Johnson County, uh, which I think we can safely say now is not red anymore. It's not even purple. It's, it's got a bluish tinge to it, especially the older parts of Johnson County, where Democrats are winning pretty comfortably. Um, another shocker that happened a few months later is Sharice David's 10-point win in what I consider to be an egregiously gerrymandered district that didn't stop her from getting reelected by 10 points. Um, For my part, I try to go easy on the predictions um, because um, uh, they can be wrong. (laughs) Um, I did think Sharice Davids had a real chance to get reelected. And I did think that the pro-choice or vote no side on that constitutional amendment had a chance too. I was not counting them out. I was telling reporters from all over the world um, that uh, don't count out – the uh, vote no on this. But I thought vote no would win narrowly. I didn't think it would win by 18 points. Certainly the fact that Johnson County is, is, has this bluish tinge to it, you know, blue for Democrats, of course, is very significant. And I think it's especially significant because you know, this fall, uh, abortion rights was not on the ballot directly. Now, it was indirectly because lots of candidates took stands on the issue, like Sharif Davids, who's pro-choice, and her opponent, Amanda Adkins, who's anti-abortion. But it wasn't on the vote directly like it was this summer, and neither, neither was Donald Trump. And so the big question was, well, sure, Johnson Countyans, many of them, got to watch out for those excessive generalizations, but many of them aren't big fans of Donald Trump. Donald Trump wasn't a fit for the politics of Johnson County. But what if the you had a Mitt Romney, for example? Are they going to go back to being a Republican county? Uh, well, we don't know because the Republican Party isn't going back in that direction, although we they may be post-Trump, but now they've got DeSantis and so forth. But the bottom line is no Donald Trump and no direct vote on abortion rights, and still Johnson County went heavily for Cherie State heavily for Laura Kelly, um, and so on and so forth. And so that is an indication that Johnson County becoming Democratic-leaning, maybe not every place in the county, but cumulatively, Democratic-leaning is not just a reaction to Donald Trump, where it will snap back to being purple, or even even a Republican voting county now that Trump's not on the ballot. So that's interesting.
3: Um,
2: the other thing, though, jumping back to that abortion rights vote was, of course, that uh, in many rural counties, vote no either won or it passed by a far smaller margin. I'm sorry, it lost by a far smaller margin than did, say, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. So in other words, in many rural counties, and granted, we have to be careful because the voter turnout is different in different communities and different elections. So obviously not everybody who votes in the presidential election voted in that election, although for an August election, the turnout was unusually high. But even once we factor that in and we sit down and we crunch the numbers, the bottom line is there are people that voted for Donald Trump twice that also voted no on amending the state constitution. And many of those voters live in rural Kansas. And why did they do that? Well, I've long felt that you just when, – when we're talking about rural Kansas, and I do work there and have family from there, although I personally am from here in Kansas City, I, I feel uh, kind of – I know a thing or two about the community. Um, you cannot count out that libertarian strain um, that that just I don't like government, period. Uh, I don't want government to take my guns. I don't want government on my land and I don't want government to tell me what to do with my body. And that's essentially how a lot of people voted in rural Kansas. Uh, now, vote no did pass in a number of rural counties. But if you look at the margin, it was way, I'm, I'm sorry, vote yes did pass. So to regulate abortion or criminalize it did pass. But if you look at the margin, it's way smaller than Donald Trump's margin over Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. So um, I think I attribute part of that to that libertarian strain. Go away, government. Just go away. off the off the guns, off the land, just go away. Um, I think that's a significant factor. Another thing we might talk about, which uh, has come up in some other issues too in both states, is confusing ballot language. One thing I want you all to understand, this amendment, as well as a number of other um, pieces of legislation, now this was a constitutional amendment, not a piece of legislation. Again, the abortion rights thing is what I mean. But also, legislation in both states are being written by lobbyists. They're not being written by the staff of the Missouri General Assembly or the Kansas Legislature. And the so called Value Them Vote Amendment is a good example. The recent legalization of sports betting was also written by lobbyists. Uh, I find this alarming. Um, and so I just, pardon me, I just want to put that out there for you to think about that. This was straight up written by lobbyists. And the if you voted, if you're a Kansan and you happen to vote in that election, you may have noticed the way the ballot language was worded was really confusing. It wasn't this kind of crisp, clear, clean, shall the state legislature be empowered to regulate or criminalize abortion? Oh, no, 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 no. It was really convoluted. And um, that doesn't go over well in Kansas. I've long said that the unofficial motto of the state of Kansas is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, and you go messing with the state constitution and that doesn't go over so well with Kansans. Leave our constitution alone. And and also there's, I think, this, this sort of tendency that if I don't understand something, I'm voting no. Uh, I don't understand it, so it must not be a good thing. Um, and uh, I think that it, it may be, and I am speculating here. Speculation alert! They okay, put the big, put the big flashing sign over my head. I, this isn't data driven. I'm speculating right now. But I'm speculating that the interest groups, I'm not speculating about that. I'm, one of the leaders of the Kansas legislature told my class straight out, lobbyists wrote that. That's factual. That's not speculation. Okay. The speculation piece is that the confusing wording was an attempt to get it passed, was a belief that if people understood what they were voting on, they'd be even more likely to vote no. If that's true, uh, it blew up on them. Because if anything, the confusing ballot language probably, at least, at the very least, it didn't make it pass. It may have even made it more unpopular. And we saw that again, right? We saw that again in the November vote because we had this vote on what's called a legislative veto, which would have allowed the Kansas legislature to hold a vote on actions by the governor or state agencies, probably a reaction to COVID lockdown protocols from a few years ago. Um, And it basically ended in a tie with no prevailing by just an infinitesimal margin, one-tenth of one percent or less. It was tiny. Um, And um, that that may have also been a reaction to when it's confusing and and Kansans just don't understand quite the rationale for it. They just default to no, leave our Constitution alone. That was one of the more fascinating votes. Uh, In terms of statewide elections on Kansas, one of the big questions I get is, why did the voters elect Laura Kelly and Chris Kobach? Um, and it kind of takes me back, showing my my age a little bit here, to about 2006, when voters elected Kathleen. I'm sorry, 2002. Pardon me. Uh, Ka- Kathleen Sebelius is governor, and Phil Klein, if you remember him, as attorney general. I think Kobach will be very similar to Phil Klein as attorney general. Um, bomb thrower, social conservative, very confrontational with the federal government. Uh, Now, in the case of Sibelius and Klein, voters actually split their tickets. Some voters voted for both. And um, a friend of mine uh, actually spoke with Kathleen Sibelius about this in an interview, and even she couldn't explain it. Why would anybody split their ticket between a moderate Democrat and a a bombastic uh, conservative attorney general? I don't know. (laughs) Name recognition, maybe. Uh, I think the Kelly-Kobach dynamic is a little different. I don't think you've got a lot of votes voters that split their ticket. Certainly the Democratic candidate, Chris Mann, overperformed the Democrats numbers in Kansas um, by more than double digits, as did Laura Kelly, Um, ran a pretty good campaign. I think there are two things with Chris Mann. One is that he and it's a sad reality of American politics. I don't like it. It's just a sad reality. You have to raise a lot of money Partly, you know, when you run for office, they say, uh, let's keep it simple and say you're running against one candidate, probably the nominee of the other party, um, which isn't always the case, right? But even then, even in that simplified example, you actually have two opponents. Your first opponent isn't actually the nominee of the other party. Your first opponent is nobody's ever heard of you. Um, This is one of the reasons why you see celebrities winning public office, Donald Trump, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and others, uh, around here, we got local TV uh, celebrities like Congressman-elect Mark Alford, right? And the reason is because you've got to do something to overcome that phenomenon where voters who aren't just totally plugged into politics, um, they've never heard of you. They haven't the slightest clue who you are. That's actually your biggest opponent in many cases. And uh, I think Chris Mann ran a good campaign. He positioned him well as a Kansas Democrat. He avoided the party label. He focused on state-level issues, not federal issues. Kobach was doing federal stuff, and he almost won. But I don't think he quite. We, we still see some exit polling data that there are some voters that hadn't heard of him or didn't know anything about him. Uh, the other piece is that there was a third-party candidate in the Kansas gubernatorial race. It was a gentleman named Dennis Pyle. Um, he, uh, if you remember, Tim Hewell's camp from a few years ago, a former congressman from Western Kansas. Dennis Piles, kind of a Ewell's camp type of uh, very outspoken, does not get along well with members of his own party. Um, and um, I, I had um, a former the former Senate vice president, Kansas Senate vice president, is from Emporia. And he speaks to my class and we, my students and I get to who's that guy. <laughs> so. Um, this uh, this fellow Dennis Pyle. He's from Hiawatha, Kansas, kind of rural northern Kansas. Um, not a huge fan of the Republican Party uh, leadership in in that state. He did not like the redistricting maps that the legislature drew. He really had issues with that, particularly the placement of Lawrence in what's called the big first district of western Kansas, which looks to me like a pretty egregious gerrymander. But uh, anyway, uh, he broke from the party and ran as a third party or pardon me, an independent candidate. Kyle got about 2% of the vote. That's about the same as Laura Kelly's margin over her opponent, Derek Schmidt. Um, and uh, I think that probably those voters that voted for Pyle and Kobach can account for how Kelly, who did run a great campaign, um, Kelly got reelected, but Kobach also got uh, elected in in a very close race. And then Mann just didn't quite get his name out un- quite enough. He did a good job, but he just he needed a couple more weeks to close the deal. I think. And so that's my snapshot of Kansas. Uh, we can talk about Missouri for a little bit. For me, the big thing about Missouri, I feel like I'm at open mic night, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> but the big thing about Missouri, just kind of the big picture of Missouri, is um, Missourians, uh, Missouri, uh, we really, we're not the show me state anymore. We're the split personality state. Um, everybody says, oh, Missouri's gone red. Right, you look at 2008 election returns. John McCain beat Barack Obama by one tenth of one percent, and then it starts trending red. Donald Trump won it twice by double digits easily. The entire, every statewide elected office in the state of Missouri is Republican now. Uh, The state auditor flipped this time around, and then um, the uh, general assembly is supermajority Republican in both houses. Ah, conservatives, right? Well, hold on. Hold out. What about these ballot initiatives? Right? Missouri legalized recreational marijuana in this recent vote. Some controversy with that about how the licenses are issued and if that's fair, but nevertheless, it's done. But it's not just that. When right to work was on the ballot, right to work is um, something that labor unions oppose. Basically, you can work at a union shop without joining the union. Uh, Voters sided with the labor unions in, I think it was summer of 2013, two to one. Two to one, Missouri voters sided with labor unions. Clean energy credits have passed by ballot initiative in Missouri. Um, uh, and There was a clean elections law in effect until it was amended in such a way as to kind of gut it. Many people think that was because of deliberately confusing ballot language. Another big one is Medicaid expansion. Um, Now, belatedly, being uh, implemented in Missouri after passing in the summer of 2020 by 53% when it was deliberately placed on the ballot, on the summer ballot, thinking it would be more likely that it would be defeated in a summer vote. It still passed. Um, And so if you look at ballot issues, it looks like Missourians are actually pretty, pretty liberal. Uh, but boy, when it comes to statewide votes with that party label, the Republicans have a clear advantage. And so there's something about that Republican label that is compelling. Uh, of course, there was one thing that uh, disappoints progressives in Missouri in the past, and that is the state mandate that the city of Kansas City raised the percentage of state money spent on the police, which was defeated overwhelmingly in the city of Kansas City, but... Because of a legacy of the Pendergast machine, the Kansas City police are under state control. And so this state mandate to raise the percentage allocated to the police uh, did pass statewide. So that would be one. Maybe that's a clue. Maybe it's law and order issues. Even on abortion rights, um, Missourians, most polls of Missourians indicate that Missourians are actually pretty evenly split on that. It probably, if you put it on the ballot, and there is talk of that um, in Missouri, obviously not the General Assembly, it's uh, activists are thinking about doing an initiative petition. If you put it on the ballot in Missouri, I doubt pro-choice would win by 18 points. Missouri's a different political culture, but it may pass. Uh, Missouri would probably be closer in terms culturally, at least on that issue, to Kentucky, where the pro-choice side recently passed by about eight point. Um, and so it's not clear. Sorry, Thomas Frank. It's not clear that it's abortion rights that's the issue here. Um, maybe it's law and order. I don't know. But Missouri, like I say, Kansas. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And Missouri is the split personality state. Um, and in the interest of uh, giving you a break from listening to me drone on and on and having Q&A, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. But if, you, if we have time and you have things you want to talk about we didn't talk about, now's the time. It's now time for question and answer. And,
1: um, and if people with questions can line up over there with your questions.
3: I had a question about gerrymandering. All right. Okay. So we know what happened in Kansas as far as gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. So my question is, if the Supreme Court were not to interfere with that process in Kansas as well as other states, does that mean that this is going to be a permanent or a trending, something that's going to trend around the nation as well as in Kansas so that we're going to see these distorted um, maps? Are we? Is that what? Is that where we're headed now? Probably already seeing them.
2: Just a quick kind of anecdotal example. Uh, if there's anything that the, uh, the uh, Missouri General Assembly and the Kansas legislature don't like, it's college towns. Um, if you look at the current map of Kansas, uh, the we. The the central and western Kansas rural district, which there's such a long storied history about that. That's where Bob Dole comes from, Jerry Moran. Um, this uh, Pat Roberts came out of there. There's almost like a pipeline. You get elected member of Congress from Western Kansas, and then you become a senator. And then it's, you're off and going. Um, and we call it the big first, because the first district in Kansas, and geographically, it's huge, because due to the low population density, the district has to be larger physically to, to have the right number of people. Um, and now it has this, what I would call like a, we call it a claw kind of reaches over some other counties from the big first and goes all the way to Lawrence, which is like, what, 45 miles from Kansas City. That's not in western Kansas. (laughs) Um, And they put Lawrence in this, one of the most heavily Republican and rural congressional districts in the United States. Actually, Manhattan's in that district, too. So both of the biggest college towns. Um, And then poor Columbia didn't do any better. The Missouri General Assembly cut it up into pieces and put it in three different congressional districts. Um, So boy, do they not like college towns. Um, But there's that. Um, What, uh, is it Jefferson? What Jefferson was asking me about, and again, you all, I know, you're politically plugged in, you you know what's going on. What he was asking me about is this uh, Supreme Court case that has to do with the legal uh, theory that uh, many people consider fringe. Um, and it has to do with a provision in the U.S. Constitution that states that the legislature has jurisdiction over election laws, the state legislature. Um, the conventional interpretation of that would be legislative authority, which could be a nonpartisan redistricting commission, like they use in California, a bipartisan redistricting committee, like they use in Iowa. It could be, you know, legislative authority is a fairly broad term. Um, But there is this, again, what I would consider a fringe movement to read that very literally so that the state legislature has absolute authority over election laws and cannot be challenged in any way. Um, And they've taken a case on that. And it looks like Judge Barrett will be the swing voter on that one. We won't know until June because that's how the Supreme Court does it. Um, but were the they to side with the, I, I can't remember whether it's the plaintiffs or the defendants in the case. But were they to decide with the people that that want absolute authority for the state legislature, defined literally, the Missouri General Assembly, the Kansas Legislature, etc., it would strike down a lot of election laws. And in terms of gerrymandering, um, it would kind of be open season. Um, even the conventional best practices like keep communities of interest together um, and um, issues about fair representation of political minorities, which several of us raised in challenging the current Kansas map. we didn't get anywhere because essentially the Kansas Supreme Court ruled the courts have no jurisdiction over this um, would uh, could potentially be thrown out it would be a green light to the state legislatures. Uh, the only uh, blowback on that is that gerrymandering doesn't always work as Representative David's uh, reelection indicates. And not only does that uh, not always work, but uh, sometimes they in the general assemblies, Uh, are hesitant. So for example, there was a movement in the Missouri Senate this year to cut up this district into pieces and put the pieces into Republican districts. But they knew that all those Kansas City Democrats could make all those other districts more Republican. And plus, Congressman Cleaver actually has fairly good relationships with some of the Republicans. And so they did not do that. In fact, if anything, they made it more compact and focused on Kansas City. Uh, so, but in terms of legal remedies to gerrymandering, if this, if the Supreme Court were to rule with that argument, it it would essentially got the idea that you could go to court over these things.
3: We had a, um, a speaker speaking on the death penalty here last uh, last week, and the um, the one of the points that was made was that Missourians are uh, stereotypically the victims of crime. Or criminal, criminal behavior, or half criminal behavior that would result in some of their children being put to death, and yet they're voting for people who would very much like to put continue the death penalty. Do you have any thoughts along the double think process of uh, being concerned about your children yet voting for people who would who would uh, inflict severe penalties? Well, criminal justice deserves its own forum. Um, for sure.
2: Um, Missouri is not, it, it doesn't execute as many people as, say, Texas. Mo- most people executed in the United States are executed by the state of Texas. The um, federal government uh, executes very few, few, but not many. And then there's tremendous variation in the states. Kansas hasn't executed anybody since the 1960s. Um, But Missouri does, as you mentioned, you're correct. Uh, There's a recent one uh, earlier this week, I believe. Um, And, um, you know, I, I think it would be incredibly naive to deny that race defines politics throughout the United States and maybe even the world, at least many parts of the world. One of the things that's interesting about studying the two states is that the dynamics are different, right? So the largest um, non-Caucasian racial group in Kansas is Hispanic voters. And many of those live in rural communities, uh, particularly around meatpacking facilities, including in Emporia, uh, where I work, is about 50-50 uh, non-Hispanic white and uh, and other uh, and and. Uh, people from the Latinx community. Um, and, uh, Missouri, the, the largest minority is African Americans. And there is a rural African American population in Missouri, particularly in the Boot Hill region. But of course we tend to associate it with St. Louis and Kansas city, most that population. And it's just, I think there are a lot of, of racial tensions. Um, uh, I, I, In terms of you're wanting an analysis, why basically? Why do people vote for these people? (laughs) Which is a good question. Welfare is an important motivator, isn't it? Uh, You know, why is the U.S.-Mexico border such a live issue in Missouri and Kansas, which don't have a border with Mexico, and which are states which all the personal experience and data I've ever seen are that both states. particularly Kansas, benefit from immigration uh, economically and other ways. There are a lot of small towns in Kansas that would be dead if it weren't for immigrants. I mean, it'd it'd be a ghost town. The churches, the businesses, the housing, and of course, the local industries. If no immigrants, that, that town wouldn't even be there anymore. Or it'd be just a tiny little ghost of what it used to be in its heyday. So I don't get it. But I think their race is a major driver. Um, if I may editorialize, I was particularly appalled that now US Senator Elect Schmidt, uh, outgoing attorney general, or former pardon me, attorney general, talking about Eric Schmidt of Missouri, Derek Schmidt of Can not Derek Schmidt of Kansas, um, was uh held up the exoneration of someone who was not proven guilty um a few years ago. Yeah, last year that typically the law and order argument is somebody who's guilty, lock them up and throw away the key In extreme cases even execute. But why would you take a law and order stance? I'm for keeping innocent people in prison. Um, and so that concerns me greatly. But clearly our our discussion, of course, St. Louis has the highest murder rate in the United States, although that's somewhat complicated by the fact that the city is isolated in terms of, of being separate from the county. But It's a problem, and Kansas City's in the top 20, top 15, I believe. It's a problem, but we just are not having a functional conversation about crime right now. If there's nobody else, uh, I've got a a question. Talk about how the media
1: make money from amplifying political polarization, including social media
2: as Mm -hmm. well as broadcasting and the print media. Well, I, Spencer, you know, Spencer and I know each other. We've done some projects before. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with the premise of your question. Um, just like if it bleeds, it leads, you know, works in local news. You're totally right, Spencer, about political polarization. Um, you know, if Congress or a state legislature were to meet and have relatively amicable hearings and have a workable compromise, who wants to watch that? That's boring. Right? We want to see people fighting. We want to see crackpots. We want to see conspiracy theorists. We want to see drama, right? Um, and that's the tragedy, in my opinion, of government, is that when government does its job correctly, it's really boring. You know, well, today the water treatment plant worked great, and the tap water is safe to drink. <laughs> Who's going to watch that? We want failure. We want drama, and so on and so forth. And there's just so little incentive to do the hard work that, of course, for us policy wonks, it's not boring. We love this stuff, right? But for the average American, it's just dull, you know, a bunch of hearings about the safety of petroleum storage tanks or something. Who cares? Well, we do, but not until it blows up or starts leaking, right? Um, and we don't want to hear about that. We want, we want the drama. Um, and, um, you know, again, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, Spencer, but uh, I'm a big fan of the movie Network. It was the, that's the one, if you remember, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. you know Even if you haven't heard of the movie, you probably remember that line. I, it was overshadowed because it won the Academy Award the next year. It was Star Wars that won the Academy Award. And I think just in the pop culture, the movie got overshadowed. But I just think it's a classic. And it's fictional. The movie's fictional. But this dramatization of that pivot... From the news of the news media in the mid 1970s, from the idea that the commercial news media was supported at a loss by CBS, NBC, ABC, they were losing money on their radio and then later television networks because the argument is it, it establishes our reputation. People know CBS News because of Walter Cronkite. They know uh, a few years later ABC because of Peter Jennings, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not trying to make money off these things. We're trying to establish our brand. So we will lose money sending correspondents all over the world to cover the news because uh, of, of that. And then there was this pivot to, no, we want the news division to be a revenue generator. You know, where that, that model's out. The new model is you're not getting enough ratings. You're fired because we want to pull revenue out of the news, advertising revenue. And um, the other issue that I was... Uh, you gave me a you gave me an opening so i'm going to take it the people talk a lot about the news media i know you do you're pretty passionate about this issue and and how people aren't getting the full story and they aren't getting accurate information and so forth and i've always kind of pushed back on that a little bit because um there are so many different outlets and even if you've given up on the us news media entirely and i personally think there are actually some pretty good outlets i'm an npr man myself um but um you there all you need is a computer or a mobile device, and you can be reading The Guardian from the UK. Or you can read The Christian Science Monitor, which is a wonderful source. Um, it's, it's pretty easy, really. But we have to remember that it's a two-step process, right? It's not only bad news or fake news or somewhere in between, questionable news, right? <laughs> um, it's reinforcing those stereotypes, And that's the real danger. The danger isn't that if I want to get another perspective, I can't get it. Of course I can. I've got a phone in my pocket, right? I know how to access The Guardian. I know how to access, you know, other news sources. Um, That's not the issue. The issue is when you pump out news and it reinforces those stereotypes, you know, there's chaos at the U.S.-Mexico border or, oh, you know, um, whatever stereotype you may happen to hold even really crackpot stuff like QAnon. And believe it or not, I have a whole presentation just on that. It's scary um, that when you pump out news that hits those stereotypes, that, oh, sure, people could fact check it. They could go on Snopes. They could go find better sources of information. They're widely available, especially with the Internet, but they don't because it hits that stereotype. It hits that, I knew it. I knew I knew you couldn't trust Hillary Clinton. I knew it. Uh, and now, see, I've, I'm learning thanks to, insert name of news source here. Uh, and so why would I look for news anywhere else when this person is hitting me right in terms of validating my pre-existing beliefs and not challenging me to that maybe there's more to the world than I believed previously? And I think that's where the divided news media, and I couldn't agree more that conflict sells. Um, that's right, and that's what drives their ratings, right? Um, but also is why? Why are the ratings high? It's because I seek out the media that, re- that reinforce what I already believed, even if it's nuts.
3: Um, the uh, recent uh, uh, quelling of the uh, German right in uh, their head, of, it's Genesis with uh, QAnon. He did. Um, uh, what, do you, what do you think about the idea that we have an international effort uh, toward authoritarianism and it's inflicting uh, our state, our, our both states, actually, all, and all of the United States? Is it, is it really, is effect, it, it appears to be effective, but do you think it's effective?
2: I agree with the premise of your question. I wish I didn't. I want you to be wrong, <laughs> but I don't think you are. Um, the a democracy really is under attack. And it's frustrating because it's not like the way things used to be was perfect. You know, and in some ways, I viewed the 2022 elections in some ways as a little bit of a return to normalcy. Um, but at the same time, it was also a reminder that the pre Trump, pre Tea Party status quo was not really all that great. Was it better than Trump? In my personal opinion, it was, but it was certainly far from perfect. And that's one of the things Trump voters reacted to is like, well, this isn't that great. (laughs) This guy says he's going to shake things up. (laughs) Maybe it's time. Um, But you're absolutely right. Uh, Germany, you know, that very timely quelled this far right movement. They wanted to overthrow the government. Um Hungary has gone very authoritarian and, and such a fascinating country and rich history. And they're going the authoritative route. It's widely believed that the Brexit debacle in the U.K. was driven by race and immigration, particularly because in exit polls, it, it indicated many voters didn't understand what they were voting on. Um, and it, it has been a debacle, especially recently, if you followed. Um, and... Um, I think that as far as I can tell in every one of these cases, I, I, I'm not an expert on the German thing. It's so recent. I study U.S. politics. But so often there seems to be that racial component, whether it's Brexit and immigration, uh, whether Hungary, you know, a lot of immigrants uh, come through Hungary because it's in the eastern part of, of Europe. There seems to be a big racial component there. And it seems to be that Race and democracy are are not getting along, or at least our attitudes about race, and that's not a very good answer. But that's what I got today.
4: I like to follow up on that, and that Ku has been doing a study with with um, our politics coming up. To on his telling that we're back into an era of redemption after the Civil War and Re- Reconstruction. That we're back to. Media and politics are back to an era of re- redemption where media journalism is coming from a very white supremacist angle. The way we report on politics, the way we report on how we angle our stories and stuff, which is really what he's talking about with the Germans. That's why they crack down on those cute con- conspiracists and stuff. Hmm. We look at how things are being centered, how... When I, I was listening to you all the way in, <laughs> when I was driving in on a uh, YouTube, when we we're talking about how these people are well known, like Chris Kobach, and how we we're talking about the Spleen of Missouri, rural versus inner city and voters. I mean, talking about how um, people are voting, how we're seeing things from these perspectives. With your professional opinion, how do you say these votes are going out? We're so divided anymore. Yeah. How do you, when you think about that in the era of redemption, how this cycle is going, do you not see that also that we're just so split and divided that this area of time that we're really coming from this era, I see it. I see a lot of people are doing a lot of their PhD work right now are looking at things from the kind of this repeat of redemption from that time of our history.
2: Well, it's a good thing this is a speaker series because I don't have all the answers to your questions and I won't pretend to. Um, as perfectly good questions, you know, you know, the other speakers can can speak to other aspects of that probably better than I can. Oh, there's no probably. I'm sure it is. Um, let, let me tell you what I know is a, a pretty much data driven political scientist. The today's Republican Party is for the most part a party of older white people. Um, now, there are some pockets there, for example, uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border. And by the way, if you've heard about that, the fact that Republicans do fairly well among uh, Hispanic voters along the border, a lot of that's because of the oil industry. Um, and, of course, Venezuelan Americans, uh, very anti-socialist. They have their own motives kind of going the way of Cuban Americans. Uh, and, of course, you always have those individuals, right? Don't stereotype me. You know, <laughs> African-American conservatives can be particularly uh, Passionate about that. Don't stereotype me. I'm a conservative. We, as individuals, get to make up our own mind, even if we're part of a larger group that's going a certain way. But there's no question that even with those little pockets, that if it weren't for older white people, the Republican Party would be in a world of hurt. That almost every other ethnic group, as a group, not every individual, of course, um, is uh, supporting the Democratic Party. Maybe in part simply because it's not the Republican Party. Um, but a great example would be Asian-Americans, you know, back back in the day, back in my day, you know, 1970s, 80s, 90s, um, Asian-American voters were heavily Republican. Um, the, um, there was a lot of dis, uh, dispute with African-Americans over affirmative action programs, which is back on the national agenda, particularly college admissions. Um, they, the kind of American mythos, I don't need a government handout. I just want a chance to work really hard and be successful. Uh, with, with that fit well with, and I'm stereotyping a little and I apologize, but, but with a lot of, of Asian American mythos, you know, I didn't come here to be taken care of. I came here to work and to prove myself, just leave me alone and let me work. Um, and uh, you look at some really legendary American political figures like California Senator S.I. Hayakawa, for example, uh, Republican. Um, and, and probably didn't help that uh, President uh, Roosevelt signed the internment order against Japanese Americans, although Governor Warren actually carried it out and he was a Republican and then became the most progressive <laughs> chief justice in U.S. Supreme Court history. But anyway, pardon the history lesson. The bottom line is pol- political science it can't always answer the why questions. We answer more the what questions. But there's no doubt that the Republican Party, one of the ironies of the Trump phenomenon and how much of a surge it was and the rallies and the MAGA hats as everything else is folks are on the way out. They know, pardon the language in church, but you know, you user, you know, pretty relaxed, I know. So we know damn well that this is not the future. And and this idea that these this is a group that's on the way out in terms of being the majority in the United States, already no longer the majority in many places, um, as probably has something to do with why the politics are so reactionary.
5: Oh, uh You've kind of answered yeah. the co- the comment I was going to make was which was that uh, I re- heard a review of a book on on NPR and they were talking about this woman had written this book and it was long it was before Trump and uh, she said that uh, that middle aged white men believed that they were in a line to success and they are seeing women and minorities cutting into that line. And uh, and that's what's behind almost everything.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. I think I've read that book, and it was wonderful. Um, and now I'm going to blank on the name. Strangers in their own land. That's what it was. Uh, Strangers in Their Own Land. I love that book. And that hypothesis is put forward in that book. Um, Arlie Hochschild, I believe is the name of the uh, author, one of the best books about politics I've read in a long time. She basically immersed herself in a very conservative community in Louisiana and uh, did old school qualitative research where she just lived with folks, got to know them, made friends, um, and really just... um, uh, soaked it in and, and wrote this excellent book. And yes, the idea that, look, we're in our place in line, we waited, now we have these line, these line cutters. Uh, she actually uses that term that they're coming in here and getting benefits, we waited our turn to get um, is one of the major themes of the book. Um, there, um, yeah, there is very much a sense that Folks that earn something are having that taken away by, uh, by the politics of redistribution and what have you. I think if Trump reminded us of anything, it's that, that good old, I'm being sarcastic saying good old, but George Wallace, Richard Nixon, um, Ronald Reagan, and even Bill Clinton a little bit, politics of resentment against people on public welfare is alive and well. Um, And so like when we go back to what the heck is going on with Missouri? Why do you pass Medicaid expansion and then elect Eric Schmidt by double digits? What's that even about? It may be that what's old is new again. And it's a kind of politics that's well over half century old that, oh, yeah, I think people should be able to smoke marijuana if they want to and don't bother other people. And Medicaid expansion helps rural communities and rural hospitals. But, you know, there are people abusing public welfare and it's high time we do something about it.
5: I have a rather unusual situation where one of my daughters and two of my granddaughters live in France, and they have triple citizenship, American, Italian, and French. And my granddaughters, for the first time, were old enough to vote, and they chose to vote as Americans doing absentee balloting. And so I'm wondering what attention is paid to people with american citizenship who live outside the country who can still vote here and then what is the situation with immigrants in the us some of whom probably can vote in the us and probably also still can vote in their what was their original home country
2: as far as i know well um that's a whole other issue like spencer mentioned my voting laws book that i edited and contributed to and uh not you and your family of course but we know that there are so many conspiracy theories about elections one of the neat things about 22 2022 i think is that election deniers did quite poorly Um, including in kansas where an election denier lost the republican primary for secretary of state by 20 points which is music to my ears because it is conspiracy theory nonsense. Um, generally speaking, immigrants can't vote in US elections. Now, there are a few local communities that have said, you can vote in our local elections because you you live here. You, know, you pay taxes. Here. Maryland, I know, has a few communities like that. So there are a few things. Um, now, but to be honest, I'm not super knowledgeable about dual dual citizenship issues, but I believe you have to declare the other interesting thing is that there are so many citizens of other countries here that sometimes Mexico, in particular, will set up absentee balloting locations in certain cities that have large, uh, large Mexican American populations. Who are actually—they're not Mexican American; they're Mexican, living in the United States, and you can you can vote absentee in Mexican elections if you're a Mexican citizen in certain certain places. And I think I think you can also do by mail. Um, so those issues are complicated, right? But they also do feed the conspiracy theories of, oh, undocumented immigrants are voting in our elections. Hello, Chris Kobach. And it's just not true. It, it's just not true. And it's a waste of our taxpayer money to try and look for examples of something that's not happening. There are probably people that are more knowledgeable about the specific situation of your relatives than I am. Well, uh,
5: again, yeah. their first choice was they wanted to vote. They wanted to vote in the U.S., and I think some of it was, it, they, they weren't on the road. The previous election is there were certain people in the U.S. they wanted to be sure were not <laughs> elected. And so they wanted to have their little little vote count for some of the opponents of some of the Trump-type
1: people.
2: Which is very understandable choice, for sure.
1: I have uh, two questions, and you can ignore either one. <laughs> one is ralph nader had a book that came out a few years ago entitled unstoppable the emerging left right alliance to dismantle the corporate state clearly that doesn't that hasn't happened and uh um it's still there so you'd have I'd be interested in your comments on that and i also uh would be happy if you'd talk to us briefly about um your new book project that you mentioned
2: well thank you um so I haven't read that book by Nader. Of course, I'm familiar with his career going back to the consumer protection days. Um, I still talk about the Ford Pinto in my, uh, in my state and local government class when we do a unit on uh, legal, legal liabilities. But um, you know, there is there's been thinking on the left for years that this sort of um, a, a certain strain of people on the right, kind of populist-y, kind of libertarian-y. Uh, could align with those to the left of the Democratic Party and kind of like you said, undo the corporate state. It's like um, Because it, it, we know this, right? That, that, that the United States is not governed on libertarian principles, right? We're not go- governed on this idea that Government minds its own business and does the things the government does, and then the free market determines winners and losers in the private sector. Maybe that's a good economic system. uh, But it's not – we don't know because it's actually never been tried. Uh, Here in the United States, we know that powerful actors have tremendous access to government. Uh, in order to everything from, you know, military contracts to uh, different provisions of trade agreements to uh, end runs around different laws. And Spencer, you and I were visiting before I started talking today about the whole issue of state and local tax abatements, which can now run into the billions, including in Missouri and Kansas, such as the recent Panasonic project. Um yeah, you would think that there would be libertarians in particular that would say, hey, this isn't a government that leaves people alone and lets the free market do what it does. Let's get together with people like Ralph Nader and Bernie Sanders and, and dismantle this. Sure, we disagree on healthcare care and some other issues, but, but that whatever this kind of state is, is, is neither progressive nor libertarian. Um, I think where they run into problems, in my opinion, is that so much of our politics is reactive. It's not policy-based, right? Um, uh, listen, my own personal view is I'm pro-LGBT rights. Um, I'm what you might call a straight ally, you know, some of my best friends, you know, but um, and and so I don't mean to minimize the significance of transgender girls playing on sports teams. That's very important to them, their friends, and their families. That's a very real issue. But why do the rest of us care so much about harassing transgender girls that want to play sports when oftentimes the, the cisgender girls on the sports team say, we're fine with it. Just leave us alone. Um, and then we have things like global warming that I think maybe are a little bit more important to, to all the rest of us. Um, but you were talking about how conflict sells, right? And, and so to get into things like um, the fact that, the, you know, the corporate state and what is that? What does that even mean? You know, how are corporations different from people? How are they different from partnerships? Blah, 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 blah. It's just, it's too policy wonky um, for folks that, um, you know, that are motivated by hot button issues. Now, what the future holds, I don't know. Um, But um, I I think that to sell that idea, it's going to have to become a little less wonky for folks because, you know, You've you've still got politicians pushing hot buttons out there. Thank Thank you
1: very much, Professor Smith. Our time has expired. Next week, Craig Volland will discuss how a flaw in air pollution regulation endangers Americans. Let us now thank our speaker and adjourn to the library down to
0: the halls of my right. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dialed to 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio for your Jazz Afternoon with KC coming up immediately, followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni, and then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.